Are we precarious people or workers or? Changes every month for me. <laughs> I think that's, that's the essence of being precarious. <laughs> Welcome to the very first episode of Zero Infinite, the podcast of the Institute of Network Cultures. We will be talking about Money Lab today, about precarity, austerity, about work, capital, and how to approach these subjects in a political way. Uh, I'm sitting in the studio uh, of the Amsterdam University of Applied Sciences. My name is Miriam, and I'm joined by Inter and Max. So Inter, please introduce yourself shortly. Yeah, um, my name is Inter and I work at the Institute of Network Cultures as well. And uh, in the past half year, um, together with Max, um, uh, we've uh, organized the Money Lab uh, conference in December. And a lot of what we're talking about today also uh, ties in with that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of like the um, post-New Year uh, reflection on, on Money Lab and some of the subjects that have obviously been bubbling around for a long time, but um, are continuing into, into 2017. Uh, my name's Max. I worked on Money Lab 3 and Money Lab 2, actually. Um, <laughs> and so it's nice to be back and listening to some of the speakers that came to Money Lab 3 and um, reflecting on some of the ideas and um, suggestions that were put forward. Yeah, and I guess Money Lab is about a lot of things. There are many themes that have been talked about at the conference, many themes also in the first Money Lab reader. Uh, but today we will be talking mostly, I guess, about the topic of precarity. Can you elaborate a little bit on why and how and what? <laughs> yeah, a, a speaker at the, at the conference was uh, Alex Fotti. And when you talk about precarity, I think you have to start with him. I think yeah. he, uh, he came up with the term. Um, and he's an Italian activist, and he was part of, uh, uh, what was the name of the panel again? Uh, global Finance? Failing Better Global Finance. Yeah. And he talks about kind of the, the way that, um, so precarity as a, a state of being in society nowadays, where people are less, uh, their, their lives are less secure, their contracts are shorter, people are forced to be freelancers, and all those kind of, developments in society and what it does to uh, to workers and he kind of advocates for kind of unionizing of those precarious workers yeah and he like you said into he introduced the term around uh, 2004 and then 2009 I think um, Biffo Franco Biffo Berardi who we'll probably talk about also mm -hmm. is, uh, published um, precarious rhapsody so there's been yes. this like long line of um, precariousness, uh, the notion of the precariat. So now we're, yeah, ten, over 10 years of precarious culture. Um, how does one identify oneself as a precariat? Is it useful to identify oneself as a precariat? And is there, a, what Alex Fotti has been trying to establish, a unified notion of a collective identity of, of the precariat? Are we all, are we all precariats? Mm -hmm. And uh, is that a good thing? <laughs> But maybe just for the general understanding of this word precariat, and we're going to listen a little bit to Alex Fotti later, but like, are we precariat people or workers or? Changes every month for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that's the essence of being precarious. <laughs> um, th there's also th this thing of, of the perception of it, right? I, I don't think there's a yes or no answer to it. 
it's also it's like a state of being able to reflect on on this situation that you're in so it's almost like if you are precarious there's no time to think about being precarious so that is kind of a double double uh, bind yeah okay let's listen to alex forty himself i mean my activist work as uh, for for more than a decade has revolved around constructing the subjectivity of the precariat. The precariat as the emerging social class central in technological informational accumulation in, in the new phases of capitalism, yet peripheral in the political process. We can see it's peripheral. Why? I mean, there is 50-70% uh, youth unemployment. Nobody gives a damn. I mean, nothing happens. The precarious temp workers comprise 20% of the labor force. I made the estimates about OECD data about it, but also McKinsey, the, the, the global consensus, yeah. comes up about, with the same. And yet, I mean, nobody is organizing temp workers, precarious workers, flex workers, interns, needs, you know, even students, because eventually they're going to end up precarious, right? And give them a, give them a voice in the political process. It's really what's been missing until today is a political slash union subjectivity that addresses the social needs of the precariat. And, you know, if you want to fight the right wing, that's the left wing discourse. The left wing discourse, because everybody's affected by job insecurity and they're going to respond. And young people are going to fight for their rights, which are not only the which is not only the right to party, but the right to a minimum wage, basic income, and especially free so universal social guarantees. There is a return to an idea of social democracy, which I call social populism, that uh, millennials, for example, they don't want to have uh, private pension funds. I mean, the, the financial industry is worried by this because they, don't, uh, they see that millennials don't believe in the long-term future of capitalism, because fuck, I mean, of course, the crisis so that it's not unsustainable to put, uh, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's irrational to put your money, you know, in a casino. Yeah, so that was Alex Forti. Uh, he was uh, interviewed by uh, Anya Molenda and uh, Christina Ampatsidou of uh, Amateur Cities. They made really uh, great interviews you can read on our website and on theirs. Uh, with all the speakers, or with a few th speakers uh, from MoneyLab. So, Max. So, what Alex claims is that the precariat or has been uh, at the peripheral, uh, at the sides, and that his activist work over the past 10 years or so, probably longer, has been about putting the pre precariat in the centre stage and um, turning the organising precarious workers, all the freelancers, all the temps, all the interns, organising them as an emergent social class to fight corporate capitalism. But also he mentions uh, the right wing in that text as well. So as a kind of, as a leftist workers str struggle, you know, the mm -hmm. new working class is the precariat, perhaps. And um, he's correct to some extent. I mean, you've got Spain's youth unemployment rate has been uh, hanging around 50%. It's like 46%, but it's been around 50% for the last three years. In Europe, you've got a 16% unemployment rate. I mean, he is correct. And anyone that's, any country that's able to uh, 
have a fairly good employment rate like the Netherlands does that through through zero hour contracts it's commonly known that mm, you can yeah. disguise your unemployment by employing someone for nothing is that just unemployment among these millennials or in general like is it just an age demographic thing is it just specific <laughs> to the young good question i think it's it's certainly higher among the young i think uh, what alex also said like that that the higher numbers are on youth but i think what's interesting is also that do people perceive that they're part of the of the precariat or like he's kind of pointing the finger to a, a, like a societal structure uh, that's beyond you know one person getting a contract or not uh, and that's kind of a new uh, state of being and i wonder if if that's like if anyone says yes i am uh, a precariat mm-hmm. and and what do you do then how how do you deal with that coming out in the open and declaring yourself as as a precariat the problem with the unification of precariats is that unions traditionally gathered around their places of work that was their that was how you gained solidarity yeah. between all the workers with freelance workers temps interns uh, on demand workers for uber deliveroo it's very difficult for those employees to congregate and centralize and organize themselves. In fact, those companies, those platform-based companies, make it very difficult for co-employees to ever encounter each other and have a dialogue mm-hmm. or a conversation about how they're being es- exploited by them. And, and it's also about kind of marketing yourself, right? You, you don't want to say, like, I'm out of work, because as a freelancer, maybe more so than in, in Uber structures or something it's about showing yourself as a successful being in order to get work is the precarious person then i mean i guess we all would agree that uh, being precarious in your work doesn't mean that you are a failure or something but it might have that feeling for the people themselves and withholding them from organizing or how could we really do what or what does Alex Foti do to to make this like a concrete step in organizing these workers? So coining the term, I think, was very useful in defining an emergent social class of a kind of lost generation, generation Y, post-millennial, who are all working multiple jobs, uh, can't do their own tax forms whilst doing micro tasks for things like TaskRabbit and on-demand platform companies. But I think uh, how do you identify yourself as whether whether it's a good thing to identify yourself as precarious and whether that brings in business? Like, is that good for business? Yeah. Precariousness as usual. It's kind of like the business as usual phrase. I don't know whether it's a particularly good idea or nobody seems to be able to embrace that because they romanticize. There's this romantic notion of, of hustling, of staying busy, of being an entrepreneur, being a startup and moving on to different jobs, you know, having a different job every day of the week and... That's just, well, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but it's like, uh, it's kind of burning out a generation, isn't it? Yes. But maybe to uh, talk further about the need to get political, we can go to the next clip uh, where Baruch Gottlieb and Henry Warwick quite uh, explicitly talk about uh, taking it to a political level. They were both speakers at the Money Lab conference. Baruch, uh, he's a part of the Telecommunism Initiative a well-known INC speaker and writer, and Henry Warwick, also INC speaker and writer. Um, He's an artist and digital music theorist, and they talk about issues of precarity and austerity in relation to the upcoming European elections. 
So I'm here with uh, Baruch Gottlieb yes. and uh, Henry Warwick. Um, and we are here at Money Lab, well, actually, the end of Money Lab. Yeah. So we heard a lot about uh, universal basic income, about um, uh, alternative uh, currencies, uh, economic inequality. Uh, so my question is, um, yeah, what are we going to do tomorrow? What are we going to change? What needs to be changed? And what can I do tomorrow? That's straight Big out question. of Lenin. What is to be done? What is to be done? What is to be done? Call for action. Call for action? Well, I mean, every, every, uh, particularly now in Europe, we have a, a I think a, um, Holland is going to vote soon. Um, and uh, uh, Germany's also voting uh, in, I don't know, about nine months. Anyway, in 2017, there's a new election. Uh, there is not a... Uh, to my mind, there's not a uh, strong anti-austerity position that's being promoted by any party uh, that's like from the old left. Uh, they've all been kind of uh, uh, centrized. They become a kind of neoliberal left, a kind of Blairite left, like in the, in, uh, that you can see like a, a new labor in, in the UK. And uh, what what the uh, what the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, demonstrated, among other things, in the United States, is that if you explicitly put forward an anti-austerity campaign, and Trump did this too to some extent, uh, he was he, uh, like saying like uh, some uh, neoliberal trade agreements will not be res uh, will not be put through, right? Uh, these anti-austerity uh, positions resonate with a lot of people, and we should not leave it to the right to be the only ones pr proposing anti-austerity positions. We need left anti-austerity programs that are proposed, uh, pounded out explicitly, and, and, and encouraged uh, politicians, because we still live in like pseudo these democratic structures where there's governments and things and there's elections, and we have to encourage politicians to explicitly come out at, at, with left anti-austerity positions. Like publicly funded healthcare, or free healthcare, affordable housing, education, education, childcare. These resonate with everybody because they talk to their normal conditions, their everyday conditions. I I agree, and I think that uh, I think that it's that it's the everyday conditions thing that is really kind of missing from a lot of what the uh, left. The, has been doing for the past several decades. It's, it used to be that way, you know. There was always like about the working man and his needs, or the working person, I should say. Uh, but it always ended up, you know, getting lost and uh, getting broken or sold off, or compromised down or pulled back, until you end up with, as you as you described, the Blairite kind of position, the the uh, the Bill Clinton Democrats, you know, that kind of thing. And that, but it never works. Is a problem. The, because it doesn't solve the contradictions that are propelling the, the problem, you don't really, you're not going to be able to really break the, uh, the cycle. So this was uh, an interview that was conducted by our colleague Leonika. Max Inter, what do you think? How can we get political? Well, politicalness in the in the terms of the precariat. So the precariat isn't particularly uh, political if we take a very generalized view. It's not inherently defined within the role of the precariat. He's more of a symptom of other 
you know, cultural or market forces. And what Baruch especially articulates there, which I think is very um, valid, is that there's been no effective anti-austerity campaign by the precariat or any sort of socialist, democrat, uh, political left party. Yeah. And um, so where is the alt-left, perhaps, is, a, is yeah. another way to ask this. But um, so the right very... Well, in the, what we saw in the Trump campaign is that the anti-austerity was used very well to, uh, to galvanize the voice of the working class, the proletariat, and in some cases, the precariat, I imagine. Hmm. If you're speaking to a disenfranchised w- workforce, which there's a, you know, a large amount, there's going to be a large amount of them who are going to be precariats and out of work and willing to vote in anyone, even, a, you know. But do you think Trump really spoke to a precariat? Because don't you think he's kind of denying the existence of one? Denying the existence of a precariat. It's more as a worker in a in a in a more traditional sense. I think that he's talking about. He's talking about blue collar American workers, right? Yeah. So cars industry, steel, and because the, the the existence of a precariat is pointing the finger at you know at a system that Trump doesn't necessarily want to overthrow. I think he doesn't doesn't sp- speak to those people. But that's a good question. So are the old industry workers? Are they part of the precariat or not? Or is the precariat uh, a new kind of class that has come up more like uh, together with the dot-com bubble and neoliberalism, um, stuff like this? Mm. I think that's a really good question because Alex describes it as an emergent social class, but it could just be a technological condition or a neoliberal condition of the working class. So it's like a treatment of an existing working class that have been perpetuated, uh, exasperated, and um, kind of nudged by every possible electronic device to to then be (laughs) in this kind of frenzy, in this kind of constant state of of anxiety. Yeah, Yeah, because I guess the the precariat, like uh, as a new emergent class, it cuts through every division in like education, background. I mean, it's not like the factory workers who are... uh, less educated maybe yeah i think that's like, really the uh, why uh, the uh, concept of the pre- precariat has gained i think so so much traction because it it's now uh, it's infiltrating in all these different sections of society and it's not no one seems to be safe from it so you can't educate yourself out of the precariat but if if you can't be safe from the precariat state so to speak then maybe a more fundamental systemic critique of society should be voiced. And I think uh, that is a little bit uh, what the second clip that we have with uh, Baruch and Henry is about. And what we what we always uh, uh, advocate is uh, nowadays when we're confronted with the uh, UBI discourse is that hey why do we have to monetize everything you know why do, do things have to be in there that's the, the the rationale today is oh if we monetize it then we can make it more efficient like private companies always like say okay and then there's uh, there's like a whole huge debate in like the UK now about like 
uh, uh, giving performance evaluations for professors, mm -hmm. right? And they have these complicated performance indicators that no professors like. And it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's rationalizing. Uh, uh, I heard the uh, students are actually going to boycott it or, or give fake bad data. They, they and stuff. are already trying to hack that system or, yeah. or sabotage that system. So it, it's, it's being shown that certain things are like very difficult to profit maximize, and so, and those are the things that are actually really fundamental to our to to social society to culture and to the economy too to invention and to, to new ideas so and and so that we say like well why do we have to enter that into the money economy so baruch is uh, clearly talking about ubi universal basic income and uh, it's also a topic that has been um, on money lab the conference is universal basic income then a solution to precarity? Yes, in some senses. Uh, Patrice Raymond, who also spoke on the universal basic income panel at Money Lab 3, he says quite poignantly, I think, that universal basic income will not abolish poverty, but it might abolish precarity. Uh, if you raise everybody's income level, if you have a base level income for everybody, free money, essentially, then... The argument for basic income is that people don't have to do these um, bullshit jobs, as Grieber calls them. We don't have to d have uh, work on micro tasks or kind of constantly be in this state of anxiety about when we're going to get our next paycheck from. Mm -hmm. We would have our base level income sorted and we wouldn't have to, you know, do those bullshit jobs. So it could uh, abolish precarity. Yeah, but I, th I think I'm I'm also like sensitive to Baruch's argument that you know, why do these things that are basic needs, like housing and healthcare, why do they have to do with money at all? Like, why can't we just supply these things? Because as soon as they're part of a system that is also used by all these capitalist growing businesses and all those kind of structures, why do these basic needs have to exist in the same system? Yeah, because that's basically what he says, right? Um, maybe the whole thing went the wrong way because everything in society is becoming monetized. Uh, with the aim of making it more efficient and more mm. profitable. And UBI is just another subset of that thinking. Yeah, and it's very difficult to turn down free money. <laughs> <laughs> give me, give me. It feels like, but they, the, the argument that Baruch and Dimitri both make for basic income being a neoliberal plot to make you poorer, right? That's, mm. their, that's their headline. Is that it does come from a line of thinking where if we just privatize what's left of our public services and throw money at it and, and, and replace it uh, with a basic income. You know, you can take away what's, whatever's left of the public service. So, you know, if you get sick next week, I say, sorry, Inter, I gave you your basic income. You know, you go find a private doctor elsewhere. So mm -hmm. it yeah. does abolish what's left of the public state um, and replaces it with just um, free, free handouts. So does precarity in that sense really have to do with uh, the whole trend of privatization and stuff like that. We have the same in the Netherlands. Um, you know, uh, national railroads, uh, healthcare, they should all be privatized. But it seems like precarity came along with that. Or is that too simple? Yeah, I think it's tied to it. Like precarity, I think one of the roots of it is the drive to efficiency. And w one thing that really like is used 
is uh, to, to reach more efficiency is to have less things that tie you down in the future. So being more flexible as a company, having fewer employees that you know you're going to have to pay whatever they, if you have work or not for them. It's really like functioning as a business while you're supplying something that is of public need then also leads to more precarity, I think. And following on from Baruch's argument, I would just say that a lot, I mean, it depends in each national country, the state of their public services, but in the UK, things have got to a point where they have been uh, under Tory government for two terms now, privatised to such an extent that giving out free money instead of this kind of privatised public services impersonating as a, as a state service when actually it's just a poorly operated um, private company, I think I might prefer the free money. <laughs> to what you talked about at lunch today, you have a heart attack and then you're brought to the oh, hospital yeah, by so some kind of uh, yeah. uh, privatised uh, ambulance. Some Uber driver yes. in, a, in a paramedic <laughs> in a high-vis jacket. Yeah, so the NHS has been recently been called out in some regional parts in the UK for using a private ambulance service where nobody's been undergone thorough training and heart attacks have been mistaken as indigestion and they're basically calling 999 and getting a, an Uber driver in a high-vis jacket who's completely underqualified and undertrained. So with a basic income, would you have a choice to then phone a better ambulance service if you have competing healthcare, for example? Would a basic... I, I don't think so, actually. Maybe not, because if everybody's got a basic income... This is the problem with universal basic income. It has to be universal. Everybody gets it. So I get it, you get it, Bill Gates gets it. We all just get, you know, an extra but thousand euros a month. It doesn't mean we have more choice or freedom. No, but is it, isn't it about the, the ambulance system being good in the first place? Like, I'd rather have one that functions really well than choice in that case. So the government can keep their free money and just reinvest it in the state services and make sure that they're running to the best that they yeah. used to be, rather than this kind of outsourced, privatised sham. Yeah. Then if we did all get basic income, maybe there could be an option to just give our money back to the state <laughs> <laughs> well. and say put it towards your public services before they disappear. <laughs> but then it's just like uh, taxes. Yeah. yeah. Voluntary then. Yeah, we're Voluntary looking at Voluntary taxes. <laughs> it's a rebranding of taxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe some politician can uh, work with that. Yeah, I mean, uh, on a maybe final note, like Jeremy Corbyn came out. He's trying to be more populist this year, and he has a universal maxim maximum income. Ah. Uh, so rather than the basic income, he's he's trying to introduce a cap on on the most that people can earn. And that is a kind of that is talking about anti-austerity, or at least it's an economic prerogative to gain votes. I mean, the economic inequality does annoy the proletariat, the precariat, the working class. Well, more than annoy. I mean, it's disgraceful. So it's it is, it is good to see the left finally beginning to articulate some of the anti-austerity issues that have brought in things like Trump. But is it too late? Let's hope not. So to end this first episode of our podcast, we want to talk a bit in memory of Mark Fisher, Max, can I give you the word? Yeah, we were all really shocked. I mean, it came out of the blue, I'm sure for a lot of people too. Also in those really tough parts in the first two weeks of January, which are notoriously difficult, uh, Mark Fisher um, tragically took his own life um, at the age of 48. And yeah, we wanted to, ha to dedicate the next part of the show, the latter half of the show, just in, in his memory and all the um, 
ideas that he introduced and, and brought to INC and also his his position on the world and his and his take on uh, like the proletariat, the precariat, the cultural depression. And so we're going to talk a little bit about about his works and maybe starting off with uh, when we last had him in Amsterdam, which was in 2014. He spoke at My Creativity Sweatshop, which was a two day conference organized by Sebastian Ulmer and the Institute of Network Cultures, which was kind of a precursor. I mean, we had we were talking about creative labor and romanticizing creative labor. And this is an extract from Mark, who's, who was taking part in a panel called Your Creativity, My Depression. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think... Uh Neoliberalism is based on, well, not based on, but there are two principles in neoliberalism, I think, that I'd want to uh, address today. Um, The first is the idea that security is decadent and that creativity results when we remove security from people. Uh, You know, that there is this uh, kind of universal capacity for creativity which is obstructed uh, usually by state socialist bureaucracies. When we remove remove those bureaucracies, this wellspring of creativity will will pour forth. Um, And as we can see after 30 years of neoliberalism, that's certainly true. Um, That was sarcastic. Okay. um, I mean, I just think that, I mean, I think that we've had an experiment with, uh, you know, we've lived through an experiment testing that principle, and I think it's really proved to be very wrong indeed. Um, the second principle, I think, is that overwork is, is better than over, uh, underworking people. That if you want to make things efficient, uh, you, you, you overwork people. Uh, again, I think this principle is, is fundamentally wrong, e- even on the grounds of, e- uh, on many grounds, but even on the ostensible grounds of efficiency, actually, if you, uh, surely it st- stands to reason if you, if you want... Uh, better quality work out of people, you, 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 you underwork them. You get the, the, the capacity to, um, to invest in what they're doing rather than overwork them so that they're perpetually moving from one thing to another and not doing anything to a satisfactory level. Okay, so the two points that I think tie in with our um, subjects of precarity is the Mark saying that security is decadent, so this neoliberal idea that security is some sort of privilege and that um, creativity or the raw form of creative innovation actually comes out of insecurity. And um, that is a complete symptom of the precariat. Yeah, that's such a, a romanticized notion that, you know, the, the struggling artist. And uh... and the other thing is the overworked, being overworked is better than underworked. So um, perpetually moving from one thing to the other better to be constantly busy with lots of things rather than actually doing anything at all. And I think that's less of a, um, I think the precariat suffers from that, but I think in the age of like 24-7 communication in, in the West, we, we all suffer from that a little bit. Yeah, I think so too. It's uh, like offline is the new luxury. Yeah. yeah. In that talk that he gave, he goes on a little bit further um, and references this book called Dead Man Working by Peter Fleming, um, which I wanted to talk a little bit about, because in that book, he introduces Andy Warhol as the original precariat. Mm-hmm. So uh, Andy Warhol apparently hated holidays, was always working, uh, the pressure to perform and be at all the social occasions and be present and utilise and commodify all his friendships. You know, he's like, 
and write down everything that he did. Did he? he? The, the notebooks of Andy Warhol are like a <laughs> crazy yeah. pile of details and uh, yeah. So do you think Andy was the beginning of like fetishizing this type of uh, manic anxiety to create that um, came out of post-Fordist industrialization or post-industrialization, post-Fordist uh, security? I mean, he was completely, he was the cultural entrepreneur, wasn't he? Yeah, but on the other hand, his my creativity sweatshop, so to speak, was called the factory. That's yeah. Yeah. a bit weird in that sense. Yeah, but like he was nodding to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, I mean, taking creativity into the factory, you know? Or mm -hmm. Yes. Mm. Well, what did he always say? Taking something off the factory line and putting it into the art gallery. Something like that. But another thing that Mark uses or references this book by Oliver James. Uh, sorry, I mentioned Dead Man Working by Peter Fleming. There's a second book that Mark references called The, the Selfish Capitalist, which I think both books are, well, at least Dead Man Working is available on repeater books. Or is it zero books? The two are connected, so yeah. it doesn't <laughs> matter if it's not... So in Capitalist Realism by, by Mark Fisher, he really tries to stress this connection between capitalism and, and mental health illnesses. And I think that's a really, that really uh, came back to me after uh, I found out about him taking his own life and how he suffered with depression, how that came out in his own writing. I didn't know that at the time when I was originally reading it. And there's a real lack of scientists, or at least scientists being funded to make the connection between anxiety, capitalism and mental health, schizophrenic or psychological disorders? I think um, there is some work being done, for example, here in Amsterdam. There's a lot of research going on um, with uh, students and like the overworkedness of students and mental problems. So it's good that there is some attention, at least in that sense. Yeah. yeah. yeah I think in uh, Capitalist Realism, uh, Mark Fischold, he calls this uh, the privatization of stress where it's uh, responsibility of dealing with it and with your state of mind that he says is, is caused by structural societal things is kind of pushed back to, is always kind of pushed back to the individual, either psychological distress or, or experiences that, that you have. And I think this kind of leads to the, to the second clip that we have of uh, Mark's talk at My Creativity, where he talks a bit more about the personal aspects of capitalist realism. All right, let's listen. It's also the last clip of our show. Post-Fordism, I think, could be, you know, one way of seeing post-Fordism is as the answer to these, to these desires, the desire for the uh, aestheticization of life. But, you know, capitalism is like an evil genie which will grant your wishes, but to, uh, exactly to the letter. So you get what, exactly what you asked for and not uh, what necessarily what you wanted. Um, so, you know, uh, if workers, Fordist workers, complained of, uh, of, uh, of boredom, um, and capitalism said, okay, you won't be bored anymore, you'll just be perpetually anxious instead. Um, so we've seen this, you know, this, this shift from boredom to anxiety, from security to precariousness, which we're all familiar with. And far from work being abolished then, and, you know, then the, 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 there's a freeing up of this capacity for... Like, larger swathes of the population to be engaged in, in artistic style projects. Work is now everywhere. Uh, this is partly a result of this uh, drive towards mandatory entrepreneurialism, which has led not to a liberation of creative energies suppressed by state bureaucracies, 
uh, but to the channeling, diverting, and narrowing, really, of, of creative energies uh, into making money, into this, uh, where, into hustling, basically. And, you know, what, it's not even a glamorous, for, for most people, this won't consist in a, making a lot of money, but into, it's a lucky m maintaining pure, mere subsistence. And of course, alongside this uh, is the uh, inevitable meta work uh, that accompanies so much so-called entrepreneurial activity, where bureaucracy is not eliminated, but it's outsourced to the individual who is now responsible for their own self-surveillance um, and self-promotion, as I put it in capitalist realism, all that solid melts into PR. Um, and, you know, with the, the, the cultural shifts into, of the, of, of, into um, fully embedded, naturalized neoliberalism is responsabilization. Um, individuals uh, increasingly asked to bear the weight of, 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 of their own failures, uh, to not explain these away by um, uh, their social position, but to take responsibility for them themselves. This is part of what I called the privatization of stress. And these tendencies, you know, exacerbated and uh, enabled by capitalist cyberspace, where hustling and meta work uh, are, are kind of uh, uh, ubiquitous, uh, you know, fusing in something like social media, such as Twitter, in which we inevitably become curators of our own uh, reputation and ultimately of our lives. Um, I think that this has led then to production of a, of a new mode of time, um, a time of uh, urgencies. Um, urgencies uh, such as we experience in anxiety dreams. That effectively, the social world has been, has, has been social and the world and the world of work uh, and our existential world, and of course they're uh, increasingly fused under, under post-Fordism and, and capitalist cyberspace, uh, now subject to the same kind of uh, temporality uh, as an anxiety dream. That was Mark Fisher at My Creativity in 2014 here in Amsterdam. Max... Um, Closing remarks. Yes. So the um, mandatory entrepreneurialism, entrepreneurialism that we know so well in phrases like "get rich or die trying" by Fifty Cent, it's become uh, <laughs> absorbed into into Western culture. So that I'm th beginning to think is a precariat, a privilege. Being able to recognise or articulate the precariousness of these positions is that does that come from a position of privilege, and is that why perhaps people aren't self-admitting themselves as precariats, you know, like, mm -hmm. is 50 Cent a precariat? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think uh, Andy, uh, Andy Warhol, like we said, romanticised the precariat, but I, I wonder if we're able to make the precariat as accessible as it commonly is. Like, can we make the term as recognisable as the phrase, get rich or die trying? I really want to mention also uh, the project by Silvio Lorusso, he is our colleague at the publishing lab, and also he's been with INC uh, before that, in which he, from an uh, artistic and uh, theoretical perspective, gets into questions like these, and the project is called Welcome to the Anthropocariat. And uh, a closing remark on, on Mark, and uh, you can actually donate to, uh, to his family at the website youcaring.com. Um, so check that out if you've got some spare coins to contribute.
or read the books. Yeah. That's always both. They they <laughs> will live on. Yeah. Hauntology. Right. Yeah, yeah, hauntology. Yeah. Too. Well, a bit of a melancholy note to end on, but uh, hope you enjoyed listening to our very first podcast of the Institute of Network Cultures. The next episode will be about digital publishing and, well, can't wait. I want to thank everyone that we heard in the clips. I want to thank Inter and Max, Mark Fisher, Amateur Cities, and all our colleagues at the INC. And we thank Henry Warwick for his funky tunes.